Today we're going to begin looking at Matthew 24. I'd like to read Matthew 23, 36 through Matthew 24, verse 2. This is Yeshua speaking. He says, I assure you all these things will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. As Yeshua left and was going out of the temple complex, his disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. Then he replied to them, Don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Now Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. In the last lesson, I basically gave an introduction to the prophetic chapter that we're now going to begin to study. And today we'll get back to the Bible. I didn't deal with the Bible verses too much in the last lesson. We covered some focal points, some starting points. But we're going to get back to the Bible today. And I promise you we'll be using the Bible to learn about Matthew chapter 24. That's really all that we need. I think that most people don't use the Bible. I think most people would rather use USA Today or the Huffington Post, but we're not going to be using those things to interpret Matthew 24. We're going to be using Matthew chapter 24 and comparing Scripture with Scripture. As a matter of fact, these lessons will not only dissect Matthew 24, but they'll also contain some key material on how to do proper Bible study. I'll explain points and methods of Bible study, and then I'll show you how to do them because I know people, I run into people all the time that want to study the Bible more than they already do, and sometimes they don't know how. And that's okay. We're all at different levels and different places in our manners of Bible study, and there's things that I know now that I didn't know 15 years ago. There's things I know now I didn't know one year ago, okay, in regards to Bible study. So if you've wanted to do more Bible study and may go deeper, this series or this chapter, I'm going to show a lot of Bible study techniques that you can use and implement um, in your own Bible study time. So if you listen to these lessons carefully, you'll learn some key points in how to do this yourself. And we'll begin with one of these right now. And that is this. I've often mentioned in sermons how that chapter and verse divisions did not exist when the books of the Bible were originally written. Now, I've never really explained this much in detail, but I'm going to spend some time doing so in this lesson because it's important to our current study. It is key that you do not stop in Matthew 23, 39 and then start Matthew 24 thinking that a totally new thought or an account begins. It's vital that you see this as one continuous flow of thought. I think sometimes we'll do this even subconsciously. We may not even mean to do it, but because a chapter stops and a new one begins, we think, well, it's just a new, brand new thought. Well, I want you to try to wipe that out of your mind today, and I'm going to explain why. In the manuscripts of Matthew available to us today, the oldest of which are in the Greek language, there isn't any chapter in verse divisions in the book of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew. 
The same is true for the majority of the New Testament Scriptures and the Old Testament Scriptures. They are each continuous books for the most part. And this continued up for over 1,000 years after the time of Christ. This means that congregations of believers in Christ, like ours, for 1,000 years plus, never said what I said tonight. Let's turn to Matthew 24, verse 2. They never said that. They instead knew the book of Matthew a lot of times by memorization because people didn't always have Bibles. That's another way that we're blessed, Brother Tim. We have bound Bibles. This is a relatively new invention here, only probably for the last roughly 500 years, And, and even not so much back then as it is today. Nobody ever said that. They instead knew the book of Matthew and likely knew the words or phrases where certain thought sections began and ended. An early Greek manuscript of the New Testament would have been written in all capital letters, no punctuation, as we know punctuation today, no spaces in between the words, and no verse divisions or chapter divisions. Just one run-on sentence, as we would call it, but not a run-on sentence, if you kind of get what I'm saying. Now, if we carry this over into our modern English language, this means that Matthew 23.38 through Matthew 24.2 would look something like this that I've got on the screen. Now, we're not used to reading script like this, but this is how it was done early on in the Greek language and also in the Hebrew language. Later, it became more nuanced and there were capital and lowercase letters, spacing in between words, some divisions in the text, but still no chapter and verse divisions like we know them today in our Bibles. Those did not come along until the 1500s. In 1551, there was a man, a Frenchman, by the name of Robert Estienne, and he added verse divisions into what was his fourth edition of the Greek New Testament. And these will become the pattern for what we now have in our English Bibles. Now, the chapter and verse divisions we have in our English Bibles, they're not sinful. We can't say, well, they're man-made, so let's just take a big ink blot and blot them all out. Okay, you don't have to do that. All I'm saying is is that oftentimes it is very good if you wipe them out of your mind and continue the thought process from one chapter to the next chapter. Now, when you buy a Bible today, if you you have a Bible today and you look look it up, you can owe the chapter and verse divisions as we know them today, to this this man on the screen. (laughs) He's the one that started it, Robert Estienne, a Frenchman, back in the 1500s. It's important that you realize this because some people might think that we need to make a clean break after Matthew 23 and begin a fresh, brand new thought in Matthew chapter 24. Because after all, we're starting a new chapter in the book. But the problem with that thinking is that we are not starting a new chapter. Those chapters did not exist in the original or early copies of Matthew's manuscript. Sometimes, sure, new thoughts begin in new chapters. Totally new ideas and concepts sometimes start when a new chapter starts. And that's because Bible scholars and Bible translators have done an excellent job, number one, at translating the Bible, I didn't say perfect, but I said excellent job at translating the Bible. 
and they have done also an excellent job of placing chapter and verse divisions into the books of Scripture. But these are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. When we realize this and then we read through as we should, what we see is an unbreakable connection from Matthew 23 into Matthew chapter 24. Let me share this with you, and we just read it at the beginning of the lesson. Yeshua is in the temple. He's been in the temple since Matthew 21, 12. Remember where he drove out those that bought and sold in the temple and made his father's house a den of thieves. He pronounces judgment on, he says, this generation. He says, all these things will come upon this generation. Well, who has he been scathing in Matthew 23? The scribes and the Pharisees. The men alive at his time. All these things will come on this generation. Why? Because they're the generation that all the woes came upon. And we've talked about how the scribes and Pharisees are the leaders in Israel, specifically the leaders in Judah. He tells them, Your house is left desolate, waste, and solitary. We talked about how that your house is primarily referring to the temple that he was in, which was supposed to be the house of Yahweh, the house of prayer, but they made it a den of robbers. And he gives the only way that they will see him is to acknowledge that Yahweh sent him. He says, you won't see me anymore until you say, blessed is he, talking about himself, that comes in the name of Yahweh. Until they were to say that, there was no hope for them. But obviously that's an offer of repentance. They can repent. Yeshua then leaves the temple. Think about it. To leave the temple, you turn your back on the temple. He walks out of the temple and the disciples call his attention to the temple buildings. Look at these temple buildings, they say. And then he tells them that all the stones of the temple will be knocked down. I want you to think about it. Why did the disciples call his attention to the temple buildings? This is why. They understood what he meant when he said, Behold, your house is left a wasteland. And the temple complex was huge. It was an edifice. It was beautiful. And so they're saying, Master, the house is left desolate. Look at, look how great this temple is. Look how wonderful this edifice is. That is one cohesive thought. And it's vital that you put it together like that. What we're dealing with here is judgment upon unbelieving Israel, specifically the house of Judah. Matthew 24 is all about judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem. I think most of you guys that I'm looking out at here tonight were here at the sermon, the last sermon in Matthew 23, where we talked about some of the divorce of the house of Judah. Well, that's what Matthew 24 is all about. Judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem. It's all about the judgment coming upon them because of their failure to say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of Yahweh. Which means a rejection of Yeshua as the promised Messiah sent by Almighty Yahweh. <clears throat> Remember what we learned from studying Matthew 21 through 23. The leaders in Judah are the builders who rejected the cornerstone. Remember? Yeshua quoted Psalm 118. He said, The stone that the builders rejected. Who are the builders? Well, they're the nation of Judah, specifically Israelites. But they rejected the cornerstone, not just any stone, but the cornerstone, which is the main chief stone there at the edge or the corner of a building. 
They are the tenant farmers in the parable of the vineyard who had the son sent to them. Remember the landowner finally said, I'll send my son to the tenant farmers. Surely they'll respect him. But he got there, and what did they do? Threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So therefore, Yeshua says the kingdom, in Matthew 21, 43, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit thereof. As John 1.11 tells us, Yeshua came unto His own, but His own received Him not. And for that, there had to be judgment. Judgment would be visibly seen by calamity upon Jerusalem. You would visibly see the judgment by calamity upon Jerusalem, and most specifically, the temple in Jerusalem, where at one time Yahweh dwelt heavily. As a matter of fact, if you were to ask an Israelite during the first temple period or the second temple period, where does Yahweh dwell? They would say, at the temple in Jerusalem. Somebody says, well, Brother Matthew, doesn't the Bible say in the New Testament Yahweh doesn't dwell in temples made with hands? Yes, it says that in the New Testament, and it also says it in the Old Testament. (laughs) And the point of that is that you cannot contain Yahweh in a building. But the point of that is not that Yahweh never dwelt in the temple. Because if you read the Torah, the first five books of Moses, especially Leviticus, we find that when all of the pieces of the temple were put how Yahweh said for them to be put, Yahweh's Spirit came in that temple thick like a cloud and the priest had to exit because he could not even stand to minister and to see there in the temple. Yahweh did dwell in the temple at a particular time. Many times he dwelt in the temple. But we're going to see tonight that when the Israelites would disobey Yahweh's requirements, Yahweh had the right to leave the temple and not dwell there anymore. And that's what Yeshua is saying in Matthew chapter 23 and 24. And we're going to see that he's only echoing what Father Yahweh has already said in the Old Testament. I'm going to show that to you here in just a second. Now, you need to realize, and this is major, that the temple that stood in the days of Yeshua was the temple that had begun restoration in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. This was the house of Yahweh. This was the centerpiece for the worship given by the people of Israel in the capital city of Jerusalem in the territory of Judah. And for this city, Jerusalem, and the temple to be judged and destroyed is a huge, huge deal. To an Israelite, this is the center of the earth, Jerusalem is, because it's the place where they go up to serve Yahweh three times a year at the feasts. You know sometimes where it says they went up to Jerusalem, but yet it's even said of people that are coming from the north. They're traveling south, and yet it's saying they're going up to Jerusalem. Many theologians think that that's probably a spiritual thing, meaning you're going up to Jerusalem because that's where Yahweh dwells. This is the center of the earth for Israel. So for that place and that temple to be judged and to be destroyed is a huge deal for first century Israel. And the disciples recognized this. That's why they call Yeshua's attention to the temple buildings in Matthew 24, verse 1. What they're saying is this. You're talking about the temple, Master? This place is left desolate? There's judgment coming upon this house? See, they realized the implications of Yeshua's words, and it startled the disciples. So they began to ask questions and call his attention to the temple buildings. 
Let me ask you, what temple did they call his attention to? The one that was standing right there. Not a temple 2,000 plus years into the future. Not a temple 2,000 past years. But the one that Yeshua had been in, rebuking the scribes and Pharisees, and the one that he just left. When they called his attention to the temple buildings, it was that temple they were calling his attention to. Not some future so-called prophetic temple. So Matthew 24, 1 is the amazement of the disciples concerning Yeshua's negative attitude towards the temple. At one time, when he was young, 12 years old, Luke chapter 2, he called it his father's house. But now he doesn't call it his father's house. At the end of Matthew 23, he says, Your house. Your house is left desolate. Den of thieves, Matthew chapter 21. That's a big change there. Positive outlook to a negative outlook. And the reason he called it your house and said it was left desolate, empty, waste, solitary, is because of what the leaders in Judah had made it. Because of them, it had become a tomb of dead men. Now, in Matthew 24, verse 2, Yeshua replies to their amazement, and Yeshua says this to the disciples. They call his attention to the buildings. He says this, Don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. See all what things? What's the context? The temple buildings. They call his attention to the temple. He says, look at this. You see this? There won't be one stone here of this temple left upon another that won't be thrown down or torn down. So they're amazed that he's pronounced judgment upon this great house. And Yeshua basically tells them, yes, I'm being totally serious. You see these buildings? Not one stone will be left here that won't be torn down. Let's look at a parallel text, a text in Luke's Gospel where Yeshua speaks about the same thing. This is very interesting. I've just recently studied this text here. Luke 19, 41 through 44. Watch this. I think you'll see how it's parallel. Verse 41. Luke 19, 41. As he approached and saw the city, he wept over it. This is talking about our Lord. He cried. Wept is probably a a more intense word than just cried. Meaning very sorrowful, weeping. Saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, if you study the surrounding context here in Luke 19, Yeshua just entered the city of Jerusalem in Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. In verses 45 through 46, just after this, He drives out the money changers. So verses 41 through 44 is a judgment text, just like our opening text in this lesson. Yeshua approaches Jerusalem. He looks out over it. That's the city that He's looking out over. And He weeps over that city. Why? Well, it's supposed to be the city that's dedicated to Yahweh. It's the capital city of the southern house of Yehuda or of Judah. But it is not at this time because the leaders have become corrupt. 
just like the leaders of old in Israel all through the Old Testament. We'll get to that momentarily. Yeshua tells them that the day is coming. Here's the prophecy. When the enemies of Jerusalem will build an embankment against them, surround them, and hem them in on every side. And in verse 44, he says that these enemies will crush you and your children to the ground. Who and whose children? Well, the Israelites and their children. The ones that Yeshua came to but did not receive Him. They would be judged because as verse 44 says at the end, they did not recognize the day of their visitation. The Son came to visit them. That's the day of your visitation. The Son came for a visit. Remember the parable of the vineyard. It happened in real life. But they didn't recognize the visitor for who He was. The promised Messiah who comes in the name of Yahweh, sent by Yahweh. So therefore, judgment would come. And notice that Yeshua says that these enemies who come against the city of Jerusalem to build these embankments and hem it in on every side would not leave one stone upon another. What does that sound like? Matthew 24, verse 2. That phrase shows this is a parallel text. Matthew 24, 2 is parallel with Luke 19, verse 44. They both talk about, Yeshua talks about, not one stone will be left upon another. But, wasn't this Yahweh's city? Wasn't this Yahweh's temple? At one time, it was. But all of this was conditional to the people of Israel. The people of Israel could not just do whatever they wanted to do and worship whoever they wanted to worship and expect Yahweh just to overlook it and say, that's okay, I'll keep dwelling in the temple in that Jerusalem like I told you. It didn't work that way. Look with me to 1 Kings chapter 9. Now before we read 1 Kings 9, in 1 Kings 8, some of you I know are familiar, 1 Kings 8 is a long prayer of Solomon, King Solomon. Remember, Yahweh allowed Solomon to build the first stationary temple to him. David had some ideas once, never got around to it. There were some situations there that didn't allow David to do it. Solomon did it, and then Solomon dedicated it with a long prayer. And a lot of people stop reading at the end of Solomon's prayer. But in 1 Kings 9, Yahweh responds to Solomon's prayer. Wouldn't that be nice if we prayed to Yahweh and then we got a response? audibly. <laughs> that would be neat. That would be great. Um, but that doesn't happen, at least not normally. But in this case, it did. Solomon prayed, dedicated the temple, and Yahweh gave a response. And I want to read the response in verses 1 through 9. First Kings 9, verse 1. When Solomon finished building the temple of Yahweh, the royal palace, and all that Solomon desired to do, Yahweh appeared to Solomon a second time, just as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. Now recognize that the temple has just been completed and dedicated by King Solomon. Verse 3. Yahweh said to him, I have heard your prayer and petition you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple you have built to put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. At first, if we stop reading right there, that almost sounds like it's unconditional. That no matter what, Yahweh's name will always be at the temple and His eyes and heart will always be at the temple and in Jerusalem. 
However, we don't want to stop reading at verse 3. The temple would be a special and sacred place, but let's continue to read. Verse 4. As for you, if if you walk before me as your father David walked, with a heart of integrity and in what is right, doing everything I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised your father David. You will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Now, don't miss that we're seeing some conditions in verses 4 through 5. Notice the if at the beginning of verse 4. If you do what is right, if you walk in integrity, if you do everything I have commanded you, if you keep my statutes and my ordinances, Yahweh tells Solomon, then the promises, the good promises, will be fulfilled in you and in your descendants. However, notice next, beginning with verse 6, we have more statements. We just heard, if you do what's right, this is what will happen. But now we're going to hear, if you do what's wrong, this is what will happen. Verse 6, if you or your sons, so notice it's not just Solomon, but it's his descendants. That's what sons means, his descendants, okay? If you or your sons turns away from following me and do not keep my commands, my statutes that I've set before you, and if you go and serve other mighty ones and worship them, verse 7 is key, I will cut off Israel from the land I gave them, and I will reject the temple I have sanctified for my name. Israel will become an object of scorn and ridicule among all the peoples. Though this temple is now exalted, everyone who passes by will be appalled and will mock. They will say, why did Yahweh do this to this land and this temple? Then they will say, because they abandoned Yahweh, their mighty one, who brought their ancestors out of the land of Egypt, they clung to other mighty ones and worshipped and served them. Because of this, Yahweh brought all this ruin on them. So Yahweh promises good things on one one hand, but He promises bad things on the other. It's kind of like the blessings and cursings nationally in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Israel would be blessed nationally if they did what? Obeyed. Israel will be cursed nationally if they did what? Disobeyed. Yahweh rewards obedience. Yahweh rebukes and disciplines and chastises disobedience. It's a common theme throughout Scripture. So Yahweh promises, in verses 6 through 9, Yahweh promises to cut off Israel from the land and reject the temple if they do not walk in His commands and go after other mighty ones. Well, what happened? They did not walk in His commands and they went after other mighty ones. And so what did Yahweh do? Well, right around 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came into Jerusalem and Yahweh used Nebuchadnezzar, who I like to call Old Neb, and he used him as a javelin in his hand, in his mighty hand. Nebuchadnezzar was like a spear. So Yahweh was actually coming in there and doing this destruction, but he used King Neb to do this. And the hand of Yahweh, through Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed Jerusalem and burned down the temple. You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 25 and 2 Chronicles chapter 36. What Yahweh told Solomon could happen, did happen. Why? Because as a nation, Israel rebelled against Yahweh and whored after other mighty ones. Now, later on, the temple began to be rebuilt. After the Babylonian captivity, some of the Israelites came back to 
the land, <clears throat> and there was repentance, and there was restoration in Israel at that time. And the beginnings of the temple that would eventually be the temple that stood in Jerusalem during the days of Yeshua, that was the temple complex that Yeshua entered in Matthew twenty-one twelve, And he saw them making what was supposed to be his father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. So the same thing that happened with Solomon's temple happened to the temple that began with Ezra and Nehemiah. Solomon's temple started out, beautiful prayer, great dedication, everybody's there on their faces, we love you Yahweh, we'll do what you tell us to do, and then time progresses and what happens? We're not going to do what you tell us to do, we like this other way better. Yahweh brings the hammer down, Nebuchadnezzar. Ezra and Nehemiah, there's restoration, read it, it's beautiful books. Restoration, a love for Yahweh, we'll do what you tell us to do. We're going to obey you, Yahweh. The temple gets rebuilt. Everything's good for a while. But then, a few hundred years later, we see Yeshua in Matthew 21. He makes a whip of cords. Our meek and lowly master makes a whip of cords. And he goes in there and he drives out the money changers and he turns over their table. And there's animals flying everywhere and coins flying everywhere. Why? Because our master is upset about what his people are doing to his father's house. Just like Israel of old, Israel now, in Yeshua's time, was doing the same thing. Wouldn't you think that the same destruction that happened to Solomon's original temple because of national rebellious Israel could happen to the temple that stood in the days of Yeshua? Well, of course it could. Yahweh's promises in 1 Kings 9 were just as much for the temple in Yeshua's day as they were for the temple in Solomon's day. And Let me show this to you. What Yahweh told Solomon in 1 Kings 9 was just as true in the days of the Master. And what Yahweh told the rebellious leaders of Israel in the prophet or through the prophet Micah was just as much against the rebellious leaders of Israel in Matthew chapter 23. In Micah chapter 3, the whole chapter, we have another parallel of Matthew 23. Because Yahweh is rebuking the leaders of Israel. Let's read this in Micah chapter 3. This, this is all of what Matthew 23 is about. And if you understand that, it helps when you get to Matthew 24 because you know the judgment is coming on Jerusalem and Judah because the leaders have rejected. Not every single individual Judahite. There were those that received Him. Remember John 1.12? But as many as received Him... To them gave He power to become the sons of the Mighty One, even to them that believe on His name. So there were some that received Him, but as a whole, as a nation, as the leaders, they rejected Yeshua. Look at Micah 3. Remember, Micah is a book of prophecy. Then I said, now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Who is He talking to here? The leaders of Jacob or the rulers of the house of Israel. Aren't you supposed to know what is just? That's rhetorical. Well, sure, they're supposed to know. They're supposed to be knowledgeable in the law, to teach the people the law when they come to them. Verse 2, You hate good and you love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Obviously, this is a figure of speech. And the way that they're treating the people and not telling them the truth and leading them into falsehood, into disobedience rather than obedience. Just like Matthew 23. 
Then they will cry out to Yahweh. This is talking about the leaders. They'll cry out to Yahweh, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because of the crimes they have committed. Unrepentant sin can get so blatant in your life, in their life and in your life, that Yahweh, you can get to a point where Yahweh no longer listens to you any longer. No more. That's, that's a very sobering thought, isn't it? Very sobering thought. Praise be to Yahweh when you call out to Him and you cry out to Him and He listens and there's changes that's made in your life. Thank Him for His grace and His mercy because there can come a time. Isaiah 1 talks about this. Micah 3, where you can call out to Yahweh, spread your hands to Him, bring Him many sacrifices, and Yahweh does not listen because it has gotten too far off track. That's just as much part of the Bible as John 3.16, brothers and sisters. Let us be mindful of these things. That Yahweh is a mighty one of mercy. Yes, He is. But He's also a mighty one of judgment. Verse 5. This is what Yahweh says concerning the prophets who lead My people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore it will be night for you without visions. It will grow dark for you. Here's that that figurative language of darkness versus light we talked about in the Blood Moon series. Verse 7, or excuse me, the end of verse 6. Let's read verse 6 again. Therefore it will be night for you without visions. It will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets and the daylight will turn black over them. Then the seers will be ashamed and the diviners disappointed They will all cover their mouths because there will be no answer from the Mighty One. As for me, this is Prophet Micah, who is one of the remnant prophets serving Yahweh. As for me, however, I am filled with the power by the Spirit of Yahweh with justice and courage to proclaim to who? Jacob, his rebellion. And to who? Israel, his sin. This is all about the rebellious leaders of Israel. The sinning, whoring leaders in Israel. The prophet Micah was chosen by Yahweh to go pronounce to the leaders their sin. Verse 9. Listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Wicked leaders. Verse 11, Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. They take the bribe money. Her priests teach for payment. And her prophets practice divination for money. Money had gotten in the way of what was right for these leaders. Oh, I'll let the man that's guilty of murder go off scot-free because he's got enough money to bribe me with and I'll say that he's innocent when he's really guilty. Building Zion in Jerusalem's walls with injustice. They teach for power. They teach for payment. They teach for money. Reminds us a lot of the TV preachers today, doesn't it? Definitely does me when I read this. Yet they lean on Yahweh. At the end of verse 11, yet they lean on Yahweh. Yahweh is used as a crutch. We're leaning on Yahweh. Hey, we're okay. We're calling upon the name of Yahweh. We're all right. No. No. Taking bribes, taking money, taking this payment. 
They say, isn't Yahweh among us? No disaster will overtake us. Look at verse 12, last verse in Micah 3. Therefore, because of you, because of who? The leaders of Israel. Zion will be plowed like a field. Zion, brothers and sisters, is just another name in the Bible for Jerusalem. It's a reference to strength, the strong city. What's going to happen to Zion because of these leaders? He gives us a word picture. It's going to be plowed down like a field. You ever plowed a field? I plow one with machinery. What do you do? You churn it up. You dig it up. Jerusalem will become ruins and the hill of the temple mount will be a thicket where once a beautiful temple of Yahweh stood. It will now, when you look out over it, it will be a thicket. Zion's going to be plowed like a field. That's the title of my sermon today. Zion will be plowed like a field. Because of the leaders of the people of Israel, because of their rebellion, because of their sin, Zion will be plowed down like a garden, like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins and the hill of the Temple Mount will be a thicket. It will be weeds, utter destruction will come. That sounds awfully familiar to what Yeshua said in Matthew 23 and Matthew 24. I personally believe that some things that took place in the first century were a fulfillment of Micah chapter 3. In Matthew 23, Yeshua rebukes the leaders of Israel. In Micah 3, Micah rebukes the leaders of Israel. In Matthew 23, it's the scribes and the Pharisees. He tells them, your house, the temple, is left desolate. In Micah 3, Micah says, the hill of the temple mount will become a thicket. Yeshua tells them, all these things will come upon this generation. In Matthew 23, And then he tells his disciples as he leaves the temple, don't you see these things? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. And in Micah 3, Micah says, Zion will be plowed down like a field. Matthew 24 is all about judgment upon rebellious Israel in that generation. Yeshua showed up in the flesh not just like we talk about Him now and we look back to Him or when they looked forward to Him before He came, He was there. They could reach out and shake His hand, so to speak. They could touch Him. They could talk to Him. He showed up. The son of the landowner was sent to the tenant farmers. And they rejected, Luke 19.44, the day of their visitation. And He weeped. He looked out over the city and He weeped. Why? Because He knew what was going to happen if they didn't receive Him. And He's a gentle Messiah. Matthew 23, 37, He says He wants to gather Jerusalem's children like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And yeah, He's a gentle Messiah, but you know what? When you don't receive Him and you spit in His face, there has to come judgment. There has to be some retribution there. Yahweh doesn't play around, but so long with that stuff. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. That's the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. I want you to meditate on what I've covered tonight. You've got all week to meditate on it until we get more into it next week. We'll probably cover We may just cover verse 3 next week. I don't know. We'll see. But I want you to meditate on what we've covered tonight. Go back and reread the verses. Compare them with one another. Parallel them with one another. And if you've paid careful attention in the studies through Matthew 23 
and you've listened to this lesson and got the context of Matthew 24, the background, the life setting, you'll be ready to properly interpret Matthew chapter 24 and understand correctly the rest of the chapter. We'll talk more about that next week. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I love You. I thank You. I love Your Word. It truly is ever-living. I get so excited thinking about it, meditating on it, and teaching about it. Father Yahweh, I pray, I pray that I'd be able to relay it to the congregation here in such a way that it's easy to understand. That's my desire. I just want us to grow not just in grace, but even as Peter said, and also in knowledge. Help us to do that, Father Yahweh. We'll be more equipped not to be deceived if we understand Your Word properly properly in these prophetic sections. So, Father, we pray for uh, for ourselves. Um, Father Yahweh, help us not to always point fingers and think that it's just everybody else that is or can be deceived, but let us realize that um, we are called to uh, to get the log out of our own eye before we try to help the brother get the splinter out of his. Um, I pray that uh, your word was glorified and you were glorified and your son was glorified in this lesson. It's through your son I pray to you, Holy Father. Amen.